Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. And we're continuing, and here today, our sermon series through the life of David that we have called a man after God's own heart. And today we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you have a Bible and uh, want to open it up, have it open there. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but, but some big chunks of it. The words will be on the screen as well. And if you've been following along through the life of David so far, you will have noticed that things have been going pretty well for David. Uh, two weeks ago, Rick walked us through David's anointing, where he is selected to be the king to rule over that God looks at his heart and says, this is a man after my heart, this is someone I can work through, I can do incredible things with. Last week we looked at chapter 17 and the battle between David and Goliath where we saw that uh, David trusts in God even when no one else around him does and through that he is able to win this incredible victory over Goliath and bring glory to God because of his trust in him. And as you might imagine, after an incredible victory like that, David's fame in the nation of Israel goes through the roof. He receives a high-ranking position within the military. He's winning battle after battle. It would seem that everything's going well for David. Everything's moving up and to the right. His stock is just going to continue to rise from here on out. But through all of that, there's an underlying tension that begins to develop. Right after the story of David defeating Goliath, we're told in 1 Samuel 18, in verses 6 and 7, that when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul, was singing and dancing with joyful songs and with timbrel lyres, and they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Now, if you've been reading along with us through the life of David with the reading plan we've had to go along with this series, and I hope you have, and I hope it's been beneficial for you, you've maybe noticed, because our reading plan's a a few chapters ahead of this, uh, that, that Saul tends to be a little egotistical and insecure. So as you might have noticed, or as you might assume, he doesn't take too kindly to this song that the crowds are singing. The text continues in verses 8 and 9 and says, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. (laughs) They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And it's that close eye Saul is keeping on David that is going to motivate the story we are looking at today. Because Saul has been told that he will not be king forever, Saul's not just nervous because the most popular song in Israel right now is a song proclaiming that David is ten times the warrior that he is. Ever since 1 Samuel chapter 15, it has been made clear to Saul that he and his descendants are not going to reign as the kings over Israel forever, that instead God is going to put a king in place who is a man after God's own heart. And so as David continues to grow in his fame and his acclaim in Israel, it becomes maybe more and more clear to Saul that not only is he not going to rule forever, but David... David's the one that is going to take his place. And David continues to grow in fame, not just because he's the new kid on the block, everyone seems to like him, but because he trusts in God and God is doing incredible things through him. And for those two reasons, David's stock keeps rising while Saul's stock keeps falling. 
One commentator says that Saul is driven by a need to retain what God has begun to remove. Saul's driven by the need to retain what God has begun to remove. And so as David's popularity increases, Saul begins to scheme for how he can get rid of David by any means necessary. And this will begin a season of life where David is on the run. In 1 Samuel 19 through chapter 21, the narrator of 1 Samuel tells us five stories in a row, and all five of those stories begin with the expression, and then David went to make the point to us time and time again that David is on the move. He is not safe. He cannot remain in one location. David is moving here, there, and everywhere as Saul begins to scheme to try to take his life. And this is a sharp turn in the story. I mean, in just a few verses, David goes from one of the most popular people in the nation to being a criminal on the run with the entire power of the military aligned after ending his life. First, David goes to Samuel. The, the prophet that anointed him to be king, we're told about this at the end of chapter 19, and all the text tells us is that Samuel and David get together and they go to Samuel's hometown. We're not told, but I would have to assume David has lots of questions for Samuel at this point. And we, we're not told this, but I assume Samuel might have some wisdom to offer him. I mean, everything had been going so well for David until now. He had been married to one of Saul's daughters after he defeats Goliath, and so maybe in David's mind his thinking is, okay, I'm in the royal family now. Everything's just going to be smooth sailing from here on out until I become king. Everything's going to be great. I'm going to settle into this nice, comfortable life with a high-ranking position within the government. Everything's going to be great. And now he's running for his life. And after that time with Samuel, David seeks out his friend Jonathan. Jonathan is the, the firstborn son of King Saul, the next in line to the throne. Uh, but more than that, he and David are best friends. Right after the story of David Goliath and, and Goliath in 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, we're told that David and Jonathan became one in spirit with one another and that they loved one another as they loved themselves. So as David is caught in this uncertainty, he goes to Jonathan to try to find a way forward. And what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 20 is that this friendship, this covenant of friendship that David and Jonathan have with one another is going to be what delivers David in the midst of this uncertain season. And that bond between David and Jonathan gives us a glimpse into the love God has for us and a glimpse into the love we are called to have for one another. And you almost have to feel for Jonathan as you read this chapter because he is caught in the middle between his father and his best friend David. And because Jonathan is in that position, David sees the gravity of this situation far before Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 1, David uh, goes to Jonathan. The text says that he, he flees from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Jonathan, what is going on? I've done nothing wrong, but your dad wants me dead. And Jonathan doesn't believe this at first. He, he says, you know, my, uh, David, my, my dad doesn't do anything. And I mean anything without telling me about it first. And he hasn't said a word to me about you, so there's no way he actually wants to end your life. And David says, no, Jonathan, you don't get it. Your dad is hiding this plan from you because he knows that we are close. And at the end of Samuel 20, verse 3, David makes this ominous statement. He says, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me 
and death. So David and Jonathan put together a plan to figure out Saul's intentions. There's going to be a royal feast soon, and David will be expected to attend the royal feast and sit at the king's table. And so David and Jonathan work out this plan that David is actually not going to show up for the feast. And if Saul asks Jonathan where David is, Jonathan's response is going to be that, well, David had to go home for a sacrifice that his family offers to God every year. David had a family reunion he had to get get to, so he's not going to be able to make it to this feast, more or less. And they say that if Saul hears that and he reacts uh, nonchalantly, I guess we could say, if he says, oh, well, good for David, I'm glad he'll be able to go see his family, then they will know that there is no concern that, that David has nothing to worry about. But if Saul's reaction to that news makes him angry, then they will both know that, that David is correct and that Saul is planning to try to put David to death. And then they agree that after after they figure that out, Jonathan will relay this message to David by going out into a field. And and in this certain field, David is going to be hiding behind some rocks. And so Jonathan's going to go out there with his bow and arrow and with a servant boy, and he's going to shoot three arrows towards the rock that David is hiding behind. And as the servant boy is running out to retrieve those arrows for Jonathan, uh, uh, Jonathan is going to yell to that boy either, "The, the arrows are beyond you. And that's going to mean that David has to flee. He has to go beyond where he is. Or he's going to say, oh, the arrows are on this side of you. That will mean to David that he can come back into the palace, that everything is safe. And they commit to all this together because of this covenant they have made with one another. In verse 8, David says to Jonathan, as for you, show kindness to your servant. For you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. David and Jonathan's friendship runs much deeper than their friendship with one another. Friendships that are just committed to one another might fall apart in the midst of a crisis like this. But David and Jonathan have made a covenant before God, modeled after the covenant that God has made with his people. And that's the sort of relationship David needs in this crisis, and it's the sort of relationship we need if we are going to fully grow into people after God's own heart. So I want to pick up the story at verse 24. At this point, David is hiding in a field, and the feast is taking place in the palace. Starting at verse 24, the text says that David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought, well, something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely, surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, "Uh, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. Uh, He said, let me go because our family's observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he's not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? Uh, What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. 
Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Saul notices David's absence right away, but at first he he thinks nothing of it. He assumes he must be ceremonially unclean, and and that would be understandable. Uh, The the Old Testament law says if you come into contact with anything unclean, you need to, depending on what it is that's made you unclean, you need to go through a process, spend a few days away from people, be cleansed before you're allowed to come back into normal society. David's a military leader. That's a line of work that regularly puts you into contact with things that can make you ceremonially unclean, things like dead bodies and things like that. And so Saul thinks, ah, David must be unclean, a big deal. But it's on the second day that he begins to suspect that something's off. He asks Jonathan where David is. Jonathan tells tells Saul what he and David had agreed to say, and Saul flies off the handle. Uh, The... The NIV that we've been reading from says in verse 30 that Saul calls Jonathan a son of a perverse and rebellious woman, and that is really a PG-rated version of what is said there. What he does say would not be appropriate to say into a microphone in a church building. But Saul is furious because Jonathan has chosen friendship with David over his own future. Uh, Jonathan's the firstborn son of the king. That means he's next in line to the throne, and yet instead he has chosen to align himself with David, the one who has been anointed to take the throne from his father. And Saul Saul knows that the kingdom is going to be taken away from him, yet he is desperate to hold on to it for as long as he can, and those plans are being undermined by the very person he is planning on handing this kingdom off to. And right there shows us the difference between Jonathan and his father. Saul's desperate to hang on what he has been told will be taken from him. Jonathan has pledged his allegiance to David because he knows that is God's will and he has no desire to get in the way of God's will. Saul's concerned with what's best for himself. Jonathan is concerned with the ways of God. They both know that David is eventually going to be king over Israel, but they are receiving that news and reacting to it very differently. Saul's reaction is to cling to every shred of power he has for as long as he can. Jonathan's reaction is to freely give up power to the one God has said he is going to give it to. And because of that disagreement, their argument reaches the point where Saul tries to kill his own son by throwing a spear at him. And again, if you have been reading along with us through the life of David, you might have noticed that this is not the first time Saul has thrown a spear at someone and missed them. He's done the exact same thing to David. So as if David and Jonathan didn't have enough in common already, they both joined this exclusive club of those who have escaped from the spear of the king. And Jonathan knows that David was right. Just a few days ago, David had said that Saul is planning to put me to death, and Jonathan said he was crazy. Now he has to go out into the field and confirm what David already suspected. Picking up in verse 35, the text says, In the morning Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, Hurry! Go quickly! Don't stop! He picked up the arrow and returned to his master. 
The boy knew nothing about all this. Only Jonathan and David knew. I'm sure he was very confused. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go uh, carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. In my opinion, not that that's really worth anything, but I think this is one of the most emotional moments in all the Old Testament. And we can get a glimpse of that just by comparing what actually happens in this scene to what David and Jonathan had talked about doing ahead of time. Uh, back in verse 22, Jonathan had said, or they had agreed that Jonathan would shoot these arrows and then he would either say uh, the arrows are beyond you or the arrows are on this side of you and that would communicate the message to David and he does that in verse 37 stop Apple watch Uh, he says that in verse 37 but then he continues in verse 38 by saying hurry go quickly don't stop and I don't know what's I don't want to psychoanalyze a dead person but I have to wonder what's going on in Jonathan's heart in that moment Maybe as Jonathan shoots these arrows and he watches this boy run after them, the weight of moment begins to hit him. He begins to process the fact that his father wants his best friend dead. He begins to realize that he's just told David that the entire trajectory of David's life has changed. No longer is he a high-ranking military official with a seat at the king's table. He is now running for his life in the wilderness. Maybe he begins to think about what this is going to mean for him as he's caught in the middle between Saul and David, Saul wanting him to take the throne for himself while he and David both know that that God has anointed David to be the next king. Maybe this is Jonathan realizing the situation's worse than he ever could have imagined. Regardless of what's going on inside Jonathan, he makes it clear, abundantly clear, that David has to flee at once. He shouts all of this to this boy. I'm sure the boy was confused. He then gives his bow and arrow to the boy and sends him back into the city. And David and Jonathan have this moment together. And Jonathan goes over the top with his warning to David. And David responds in kind by expressing his love for Jonathan. And again, if you want to look at what they planned ahead of time, you notice there was nothing in their initial plan that required them to, be, to interact with one another for the message to be communicated. Uh, all that needed to happen was Jonathan to say what David needed to do, and then Jonathan could have gone back home and David could have taken off, and that would have been all that was required. But, but instead, David comes out from behind this stone, putting himself at risk to some extent, and bows before Jonathan three times expressing his submission and his respect and his humility before a member of the royal family. But, but this is not just social convention. This is a deeply personal moment that's shown by the fact that these two kiss and weep together. And I hate that I have to make, even make this digression, but because of how this text can get misunderstood, I feel like I have to. 
This is true, genuine friendship between two men that love one another because of their love for God. There is nothing sexual anywhere in Scripture about the relationship between David and Jonathan. And unfortunately, we live in an over-sexualized world that cannot conceive of two people having a true loving friendship with one another that does not have any sexual element to it. And so things get read into this passage that simply are not there. The relationship between David and Jonathan was a covenant of friendship based on the covenant God had made with his people. This is not a political alliance. This is not people with common interests enjoying spending time together. These are two men who have a relationship with the God who has made a covenant with his people. And as an overflow of that relationship they have with God, they form a covenant with one another. Relationships like this are not contracts. They do not say, I'll scratch your back as long as you scratch mine. When God makes a covenant, he binds himself to his people forever. For God to cease loving his people would mean for him to cease to be God himself. And that's the sort of relationship David and Jonathan commit to with one another. And they commit to doing that even if it runs against their best interests. We didn't read this earlier, but if you look back at verses 14 and 15, as they're making this plan, Jonathan says to David, show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Jonathan asks for David to show him kindness that is like the Lord's kindness. And that word for kindness in the original language is the Hebrew word chesed, which gets translated in all sorts of ways like mercy and loving kindness and covenant faithfulness. But it is the word that is used to describe God's relationship with his people. One scholar says that that chesed is the life-sustaining grace of God that makes it possible for humans to have a loving relationship with him. Jonathan asked David to care for him and his descendants in the same way that God cares for his people with life-sustaining grace. And that's a significant thing to ask of anyone, but especially of David, because David's going to take the throne from Jonathan's father. And typically in the ancient world, when a new king comes to power, the first thing they do is wipe out anyone who was a part of the previous king's family because you don't want anyone around who might have a more legitimate claim to the throne than you do. That would be what everyone would expect David to do first when he becomes king. And Jonathan acknowledges that. He says in verse 16, he he asks that God would call David's enemies to account. He wants David to succeed. He wants justice to be done. He wants God's will to happen and for evil to be punished and done away with. And yet, when that happens, he tells David not to act in vengeance towards his family, but instead to act towards them with love and faithfulness. And fulfilling a request like that will be costly and potentially jeopardize or slow down David's ascent to the throne. But they both agree to it as an imitation of how God commits to his people. And this sort of costly covenantal faithfulness makes no sense apart from the covenant love of God. 
David commits to Jonathan even when it might make his ascent to the throne more difficult. And Jonathan commits to David even though he knows that means he will never be king. Remaining faithful to this covenant will cost them both dearly. But it will not cost them any more than it costs God to bind himself to us. The God of the universe commits to Abraham and his descendants. He promises to love and care for them across the Old Testament. He blesses them so that the entire world would be blessed through them. And he sticks to that promise even when those people are imperfect and fickle and worship other gods and don't hold up their end of the bargain. And it is because of that perfect love of God that David and Jonathan commit to one another And that's the same sort of perfect love God has shown us in Jesus, and it is the same sort of perfect love that makes it possible for us to commit to one another. To borrow the words of 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Jesus teaches us that the two most important commandments are to love God and to love others, and that order is important because we cannot truly love others if we do not first love God. And we cannot truly understand what it means to love others in a covenant relationship if we do not first understand the covenant relationship God has established with us. David and Jonathan both know the love of God. And that bound them together so that they could both follow God's calling. This is a sermon series about how God works in the life of David. But chapters like this show us that David would not have been David if he did not have people like Jonathan And the same can be said about each and every one of us. I saw a license plate this week in the Culver's drive-thru where I do all my best thinking. And the the license plate said, I am Solo. And I don't know the backstory to that license plate. Maybe they're claiming to be Han Solo from Star Wars. I don't know. But I can tell you that that license plate is not true. None of us are Solo. None of us would be the people we are today without the people that have shaped us, whether that's for better or for worse, no matter how much of a self-made individual you might think you are, you would not be who you are without the people that have influenced you along the way. And that is true in our physical life, and it is true spiritually as well. I was gone a couple Sundays ago on a preaching retreat with uh, some friends of mine. And as a part of that retreat, I was challenged to share my testimony, the story of my faith, through the lens of the the three or four people that have most shaped me in my walk with Jesus. And, it, and doing that and thinking through how to tell that story ended up being a powerful thing for me, mainly because it was a reminder that a lot of the people that have most shaped me are no longer on this earth. And the ones that, that are still on this earth have not heard my appreciation enough. And we can get so narrow in our focus, we can think that it's just about my relationship with God, but none of us do this on our own. We need one another if we're to fully experience all God desires for us, and we have not fully understood the love of God if that does not spill over into our love for one another. Every David needs a Jonathan, and every Jonathan needs a David. We all need people to form us, challenge us, love us, and shape us more into the image of Jesus. We need the love of one another so that we might know the love of God. And we need the love of God so that we might love one another. So I understand that on the surface, this might not seem like an overly spiritual application, but 
The more time I spend with 1 Samuel 20, the more I think that it's asking us the question of whether or not we have good friends. And I don't mean to ask you whether or not you have friends on Facebook, whether you have friends that you go fishing with regularly. I'm asking you if you have covenantal friendships that are formed by the love of God and call you into a deeper relationship with Jesus. Our elders have been working on ways that they can care for one another. And one of those ways is that they've, they all fill out a questionnaire each year just about how they are doing uh, spiritually and as leaders to, to help encourage one another. And the last question in that, in that list is, do you have people who can speak hard truths into your life? And the goal behind a question like that is to try to build the sort of relationships that we see modeled by people like David and Jonathan. We need people who love us enough that they can look us in the eye and tell us when we're wrong. And we need to know in those moments that the person saying those harsh words to us is doing it because they love us and they truly want what is best for us. I wouldn't be where I am today without people like that, and I'm sure you would say the same thing. So if you have those people in your life, express your thanks to them. If you want to pull out your phone right now and just text them, thanks for being a good friend, I'm not going to judge you. The people around you might, but I won't. But I think it's that important that if you need to do it right now, you should. And if you don't have that, or, or you, you have it in part, but you want more of it, um, Reach out to someone right now. Again, get your phone out right now and text someone and ask them to be this sort of friend to you. Don't put it off until after you eat lunch, after you've had your nap, after work tomorrow, whatever it might be, because if you do, you might forget about it. Do it now because it's that important. I firmly believe that. And if you don't have that, if you want more of it, I hope you can find it as a part of this church family. Because as we get closer to the fall, we're going to be launching small groups as a church to create spaces for relationships like this. I have seen how well this church loves one another, and we want to do that more and more as we follow Jesus together as a church family. So if you want to learn more about what it means to be a part of one of these groups, we're going to have some information at the Welcome Center after church today. I'd love to talk with you more about, about it today. We're going to have more information over the next few weeks as we get closer to the fall. Uh, but above all, I hope you'll invest in this, in, in these small groups, not for the sake of the groups on their own, but for the sake of friendship and relationship with one another. Because we're called to love God and love one another. And the goal of groups like that is to do exactly that as we follow Jesus together. No matter what you do, love those around you because of the love that God has for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you first and foremost for the great love you have shown us in your son, Jesus, who came to this earth for those who were unlovable, who came for the outcasts, the hurting, and the broken, and died in our place so that we might have life with you. So God, as we experience that love that you have for us and respond to it, we ask that you would help us to, as a part of that response, love those around us well as an imitation of the love that you have for us, as we love one another, not because others have made themselves worthy, 
but because of who they are, as people created in your image, as people that you love and have called us to live life alongside. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.